0: Hello and welcome to ClapperCast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Rory Marsh, and today I'm happy to be joined by writer Carson Timar. Hello, hello. Writer and showrunner Diego Andalus. Hello. Editor-in-chief Jack Luke Sharp. Hello. And special guest Matt Neglia, editor-in-chief of The Next Best Picture. Hello, everyone. How are you all doing? On this week's episode we're discussing Kelly Reichardt's long awaited first cow from A24, Sundance hit Palm Springs and finally our thoughts on the potential Academy Award nominations from what we have so far this year. But let's begin with first cow.
1: She's is a very fine cow.
0: Two travellers on the run from a band of vengeful hunters in the 1820s northwest dream of striking it rich, but their tenuous plan to make their fortune on the frontier comes to rely on the secret use of a landowner's prized dairy cow. Uh, Matt, should we start with you on this one? What do you think of this?
2: Yeah, this is interesting because I'm actually uh, an admirer of uh, Kelly Reichardt's work in the past. and uh, But the only problem is that her pacing of her films have not typically clicked with me. Uh, they tend to be a little bit more uh, slower. And usually that's just not the speed I'd like to watch movies at. But the storytelling, the acting, the writing, everything else is always just really, really great from her. And I have to admit that first cow was um, still kind of going at that, pace a little bit but I fell I fell in love with this story and I really fell in love with these characters and what they were trying to ultimately accomplish and I I thought it was a really um I I thought it was really really well done I I saw it I saw it a while ago um actually almost a year ago at this point but um it has stayed with me Because it's got a really, it's got a really incredible bookends at the beginning and at the end that really helped to sell the emotion of this story. And I I found it that it resonated uh, very strongly with me. Um, It's probably my favorite Kelly Reichardt film um, that she's come out with actually.
3: Yeah, I found this film to be just absolutely charming going off what Matt said. It does have that slower, more methodical atmospheric uh, pace to it, but the atmosphere and the environment is so well done. It never felt like it was getting boring or it was taking too long to get going. Every scene that's just showing this misty forest or this just beautiful environment that this film is taking place in was not only just visually stunning, but it was just engaging in a way that I've not seen in many other films this year or I guess in general general. Um, There's also just a legitimate charm to it. I think the acting and the characters are incredibly likable, even for all their flaws and moral flaws um, and just kind of dumb moments. I found them to be absolutely enjoyable to watch. And just this film overall, it has this beautiful poetry to it from the beginning and the end and how those two go together to the dialogue itself. The dialogue weirdly reminds me a bit of a Wes Anderson film in the way that it's very dry and very specifically written, but in the way where it really highlights the characters and their dynamics this is just a charming film that ever since i first watched it has been on my mind and i know it's one that i'll be returning to again simply because
0: i had such a joyful time watching it so kelly reichardt's a filmmaker who hasn't really been on my radar um which i'm a bit ashamed to say as a film she she yeah, yeah yeah but uh sorry and um yeah she hasn't really been on my radar but uh she first came to my attention when i was writing a list for little white lies when i was working for them and her first cow was on that list it was meant to come out initially in 2019 i believe and uh my editor called her one of america one of the best one of the best filmmakers in america right now and after this i can definitely agree with that sentiment it's unlike a lot of things that i've seen before it's very kind of subdued and subtle and she's very comfortable in her own filmmaking prowess in her own audience, which isn't an arrogant thing, I don't think. I think she just kind of has a tried and tested method that I think really comes to fruition here. Uh, as Matt was saying, it's bookended beautifully, even with, um, you know, you got the two, I wouldn't want to spoil too much there, but it's, it's beautifully kind of bookended there. And the two performances are pretty great. I think their relationship definitely is Deeper than initially the filmmaker conveys, I would argue. There's definitely underlying tensions there that I think may come to fruition more on a second viewing. But um, both performed beautifully, shot excellently. The music was just fantastic. It sounded like something Neil Young might might kind of whiz up. But uh, overall, yeah, I thought it was a pretty beautiful experience. I, I don't think it's hugely accessible, although I suppose that's not really the point. But yeah, I think she made exactly what she wanted to make here, and it's a pretty charming, wholesome watch.
1: I'm probably gonna have to be quite honest and open here, but this is my first Kelly Reichardt film, which, within the realm of cinema, is more or less a sin. So, this being my first Kelly Reichardt movie—actually, pun for a cow there—I um, wouldn't. I, I having no frame of reference, I can't. I can't agree with the sentiment that she's one of the greatest or one of the great American directors writers working today. But I can come to the same, if this is, if this is arguably the easiest accessible right heart film that she can make, I would most definitely go back in for anything else. I think it's, it's, it's a, she's a very interesting director, how she conveys mood. Most of the film's silent, if not, this muted sort of brewing pot of of like a sort of mood. So throughout, I'm, I'm, I've always been invested. I always, I always was invested. Sorry. My issue with the film is that I think it's really, really, really slow. And as Matt said, this is not a pace that completely engages me. Like, I, I well, if this was any other filmmaker, I'd, I'd use it as a negative because it just takes so long. For me to find that mood and get the balance with it and see where this is going but having reading up on right hard this is this is not something new so if this this is a theme and, and a, a choice then it must mean something and before long it, it succeeds this silence that the film works wonderful with helps every sort of development in the film that the mood as well but the setting becomes quaint it become you you focus on like such small detail, you focus on, sorry, you focus on character far more than you would do if it's bristling, pace. You'd find anything else. I think there's a lot of subtlety here and there's a lot of nuance. But I think as what what you said, rore the the thing that kept me going all the way to the end and not having that issue of pacing was the two lead performances by John Magaro and Orion Lee. And I think I, I, did, I don't I don't think I need another screening or no, another viewing to sort of see what Wright had's quite trying to imply that I think there's a a very deeper relationship going there I think ultimately I saw this as a love story without an on-the-nose conviction of it being a romance or not necessarily a romance with the connotations of, of that within the genre but having a romantic interest between the two characters I think it's there I think the performances are beautiful I think Toby Jones is good is, is, is pretty good. I think, I don't think he ever really lets anyone down. Ewan is an interesting one after coming off, you know, T two quite a few years ago. I haven't seen much of him. But he I think he he's quite good. There's a lot here. There's a lot to say about capitalism. There's a lot to say about you know America. There's a lot to say about immigration. It's 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 just a very interesting film with sort of a like I, I I like the Neil Young aesthetic for, I think that's a that's a that's a great sort of description of it but I, I was I was more so found myself comparing it to Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man or Dead Man sorry with Johnny Depp which is I think believed believe scored the whole way through by Neil Young as well I think it's a very interesting feel, a comparison both of them together one from an immigrant point of view especially when capitalism another one regarding sort of class the one thing I, I was left here, and I'm, as much as I really did like the visuals, I'd love to have seen this in black and white. I think it would have conveyed mood a little bit more, maybe on the nose. But that being said, as a first point drop-off for Kelly Reiterhard, I'm not going to say I'm hooked, but I'm definitely going to have a look at you know certain women, and I probably complete a filmography after watching this. I, I, was, I was I was I was quite to say I, I'm not to say I'm not, i wasn't hooked but I'll definitely
2: go back in for round two regarding this filmmaker, no doubt. I would just want to say too, I'm sorry to interject, but yeah, certain women I recommend and Meek's Cutoff uh, is one that I know for a lot of people was uh, like the more accessible one that a lot of people really enjoyed. And Wendy and Lucy is also another one that's very uh, beautiful and well done. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, she's an acquired taste uh, for a lot of for a lot of people uh, because of that slow, methodical pacing. That's usually not a pace that a lot of people like to be in. But there are a lot of other people who that patience with storytelling uh, yields a lot of empathy. It yields a lot of contemplation, reflection on the film's themes and the character choices, and can lead to an enriching experience. So I, I understand where maybe it's not the most exciting cinema that's out there necessarily but for a lot of people it can be the most rewarding yeah i have to say that I
4: probably closely agree with Jack like it's my first film of hers and the story on the surface does seem a little bit simple but I think what really kind of hooked me and what kind of made me realize that it was just not just a random throwaway story that honestly could have turned forgettable in the wrong hands was the way that she directed it along with i'd say the cinematography because like i said it's my first film so i don't know if this is a theme around her style but i'm guessing it will be but that just the way in which she's super patient but also focuses on like just like details or intricacies that many other filmmakers choose to not focus on that's what really hooked me because i'd say without those small moments like honest I mean, I've heard people say before, one of the moments that really got them was at the very beginning when Cookie turns over the lizard. That, like, just that there, that close-up, many filmmakers wouldn't take that risk and focus on that, but I really appreciated that. And as well as that, I just say that it's, like, patient, and you could kind of see a couple of pacing issues here and there, but honestly, I found it pretty enjoyable, not for everyone, as you'd say, but I'd say for someone who's into more into film, I'd say definitely it's worth it to check out.
0: Um, probably one of the films that came to mind while watching this, and I don't know if you guys can agree with me or not, but uh, David Lowry's The Old Man and the Gun was one that definitely this reminded me of. Just a very kind of soothing, calming experience with a director at the height of their powers. Um, and Lowry also has, I think, something that. We don't realise is that Lowry is very similar to Reichardt in this sense. You look at something like a Ghost Story. That's a very patient film with a brilliant payoff, and you know it's the same here. So I think there's definitely a connection to be made between those two, and arguably Old Man and the Gun as well. I think atmospheric. Uh, when you when you regard the atmosphere, they're definitely similar. Old Man and the Gun and First Cow. Um, just this really yeah really relaxing calming effect. I was reading reviews about it and people were discussing how Breitkart kind of chooses to evade drama. And there's a kind of, except for the third act, it's almost without drama as a film. It's just a very kind of methodical exploration of this period in time, the kind of people who inhabited, you know, the, the Oregon Trail at this period and what they encountered and what their lives were like and those hardships that they had to go through and the hunter-forager lifestyle. And I think as a kind of methodical exploration of that, the first, the first act at least is a very nice encapsulation of something that I don't really think we see too much of in films. Um, and the last thing I wanted to touch on is the cinematography, which I thought was pretty fantastic. I'm, I'm not sure what the aspect ratio was, but it kind of gave it this old timey feel. I, I don't know if this was shot on film or digital. I don't know what Ryker likes to use, but it really gave the impression of something that could have been made like in the John Wayne era. Um, and I thought yeah as a whole it was just a kind of old-timey relaxing experience that I feel like you can kind of revisit and revisit and become more intimate with as the years go by but uh, I think that's definitely one of her aims here it's just to create this relaxed atmosphere.
1: Not to contradict myself about the, the running time I know we just spoke about uh, you Rory and, and, and with Diego it is a it is a it is quite long I'm not going to lie and it I'm not trying to say it, it's it's never boring at all, but it, it, you can feel that pace. But on reflection, the the one positive I can give to, to to the running time is that there's nothing in that running time that that isn't justified to be there. Everything self re, uh, reflects. It's all thematic weight, it's all mood. It just brews and brews and brews, but not overly like a like a not a boiling pot of mood. It just it, it's a nice breeze of it. So I think fair play to to Rikert. Everything that's in this film is in there for a reason. And so actually, I'll I'll speak about one thing that might it might start an argument. I I don't like the bookend, and I've and I've and I've been thinking about this ever since I watched it. And I can understand what the what, what trying to convey by it. It's that I don't, I'm not trying to spoil it, but we 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 have the inclination of of the ending through through this prologue which i thought was quite jarring but it does come full circle i understand that but i think it would have been I'm, it's, it's so egotistical to tell him, to tell Kelly right what she should have done or not but i found thematically if the film would have not had the prologue and ended the way it did with them sitting in 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 the woods holding on to that dream and the film cutting away and the audience not having any idea of and going through the story they go through and just holding on to that dream I think it emphasizes how much they wanted to escape that life how much it, it meant to them that they would go through all this just to have that s- slight idea that they, they could go to California they could go somewhere they, they, they could have more silver they could have a fortune that they, they so desired but then I just I'm just trying to sort of wrap my, wrap my, my head around why that prologue sort of works. And for me, I I can't really find a justification for it, in my my own opinion, but it'd be good to throw it to the group just to to see if I can get sort of a a different eyes on it, I see on it it
2: anyway. I think that there are a lot of readings and a lot of interpretations and it actually makes for, okay, so there's another movie that we're gonna be discussing in just a minute where there could have been an ambiguous ending, but instead we got a definitive ending, right? And the same thing is true here with First Cow, where it could have been left a little ambiguous. Um, I don't know how you do that, though, when you have your uh, prologue in the beginning and maybe don't go back to it later. Um, But either way, there was a lot of different routes that it could have gone here. And in the end, I think that what's most important is how much it emphasizes the friendship between these two characters. And... um, it reminded me of the bond that uh, Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman have in Shawshank Redemption, where there is um, not an attractional love, but a love of friendship and the journey that these two do go on with one another, the shared experiences that they have. um, Those shared experiences are not just experienced in life. And I, I, I just found that to be, a very, very beautiful and unique thing that we don't see expressed often enough in cinema. I find that whenever it's a relationship between a man and a man, um, nowadays, it's most of the time um, a gay story, which is totally great because you know they deserve to have their stories told as well. But for some reason, male friendship is not something that is expressed in like such an intimate and sweet way. It's usually very macho and usually like in an action setting, buddy, you know, uh, cop or whatever it might be kind of a scenario. Uh, But it's not like that here. And I just really kind of appreciate that it utilizes those bookends to really, really emphasize
3: how transcendent that friendship really is. Kind of interesting that the ending didn't work for you, Jack. Because when I first watched the film, and this is one of the things that held me back from saying it was a complete masterpiece, was the third act. I thought was generally underwhelming when I was watching it. On further reflection of the film, I started to find those more like beautiful, like moments of poetry within the ending. But the entire film, we mentioned how it's very meditative and slow, and even joyful at times. But there's also this impending sense of doom. You can tell that these characters are making decisions that are going to lead to a. All hell breaking loose in consequence, and it feels like in that third act when things are really supposed to, you know, go off and all hell's supposed to break loose it handles it in a very like stuff is happening but it is a very calming nonchalant not necessarily hugely chaotic moment or a third act and I felt like that was disappointing when I was first watching it and like I said since then I've been able to appreciate more appreciate this third act more and it's one of the main reasons I want to rewatch the film is to see how that holds up and what my opinions are now on it. Um, but I felt like this entire film was having this really slow methodical build and I think flipping that switch and having this big chaotic Third act and even if you end the same way in this quiet moment that goes back to the prologue I think that might have been a way to give a little bit more of a satisfying ending and a more active third act um, But that was one of the things that held me back from initially saying oh this film is a masterpiece Just a to touch on that and I think
1: but I think the only problem I have is just with that prologue because it's clear that Reichardt uses narrative and she, she uses cues really well. Like the, again, light spoilers, but there is there's a character in this film, silent mute character who's lingering in the background in multiple scenes, and it cuts away to to this character on three, four different um, occasions, and the implication is that the two characters, again, at the end of the film. There is an implication of how they end up with the prologue, with this character then following them throughout the film. So I just thought it was slightly unneeded with the prologue. If there's already the implication, inclination of what's going to happen, that the the audience can see visually, and thematically on occasion, especially when they are selling their their product, said character is a is, is a character that turns up there. I just thought that it was sort of like over, over either over substantiating what she wanted to convey but the subtlety was already there, it worked perfectly. But I must admit of, of, of what, what Matt just said about audiences really do struggle with having sort of male bond and male friendship on screen. I mean, there's, I'm not, I, I can't say yes or no if that heart is implying that these two are in a relationship or it is just a, a very positive masculine bond. But it reminds me of the Tommy Lee Jones film. It's such a random film, but as soon as Matt said it, I had to look it up. It's Three Burials, where he plays this, this cowboy where his, his, he has, a, I believe, a, a Mexican friend who dies. And he goes, uh, but he dies because I think they're in Texas and it's on the border. And Barry Pepper plays his border patrol. And I think he's, he's, this character is actually murdered. And Tommy Lee Jones sets out to bury him in Mexico really wonderful film, really under-the-radar film as well. One of Tom Lee Jones' director films showcases a, a really good talent behind and in front of the camera. I read a lot of reviews when that first came out and also I watched it a few years ago and I reassessed it and I think it, I think it's probably like, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I think it's one of Tommy jones's best films as again before, in front of behind the camera. But it's a film that you can read very much like First Cow where you have two friendships that are there's a, quite clearly a strong bond there. And it's ne- never overly said that there's a romantic interest between both of them. And I think that's a positive to the film as well, because it, it, it's, there, it's not there for tokenism, but it's the inclusion nonetheless. And I sort of read the film in this very same way with, with Three Burials, where you have two characters that are romantically interested in each other and perhaps don't overly say it contextually or subtextually for that matter. But it's still there nonetheless. And I think for me, it elevates the film. These two characters make what you will on how you read it, but there's definitely something there. And it's definitely that pull to get you from A to B to C. And I think my issue is just that I just don't really like A very much. But unlike, unlike you, Castle, when you first watched it and you thought that the third act was underwhelming. And I and I and I agree with you about it, feels like there's an inevitab- there's an inevitability about this story we don't know what's gonna happen with the characters from A to C. We know where it's gonna end up. So ultimately it's, it's the story of a journey. You know, we all know that Titanic sinks at the end. We just want to find out the thematic way between the, the, the event, how it starts and the event, how it ends. Obviously it's not that simple, but just bear with me. So this is a film about the journey and I can say for the, for the most part, I would just, I would like to say I was intoxicated by it. It's such like a distinctive palette. It is very Wes Anderson meets Jim Jarmusch. It's, It's very strange how it all works. Nothing really happens in it, but it's just so intoxicating. Um, But yeah, like like I said, I I just have an issue with air. It's like a a feeling I can't really get rid of, if anything.
2: One other thing, and I'm so sorry to keep interjecting, but um, I think that a large reason why a lot of critics like Kelly Reichardt's style, her storytelling, and this movie in particular, is because it mirrors real life, in so many ways and less of contrived moments that you would put in a movie to create conflict, to create drama. In that regard, I think it just feels so organic and natural. And what what did Alfred Hitchcock say? Uh, Movies are life with the boring bits cut out. Well, I think Kelly Reichardt is ultimately trying to show us what life really is all about with her movies but it's done with a level of skill that it's never boring. It's, 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 it's what it is.
1: <laughs> just, just a positive as well, Matt, just to echo that. I think that's, I, obviously I, I don't have a great frame of reference of not seeing Right hat's filmography, but I must admit just from this film alone, there are, there are themes of pessimism and, quite, ha- quite hard, hard themes of just you know loneliness, depression, well, not necessarily depression, but there's definitely sort of a, a class of welfare um, issues that she presents. It's not done with that on-the-nose bombardment of, this film is about two, two men who probably love each other, who don't feel that they can reciprocate those feelings, even though it's like a subtextual analysis. But it's a film about the daunting notion of capitalism, that if you get what i'm following about but she 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 interweaves that as a subtlety not as her definitive expression and that is one thing i i think that while it may not be accessible because of its themes i think it's one thing here where it it sort of elevates it if 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 you will how she sort of in like i said how she intertwines these quite dire moods and these glib expressions she does it in a way where it's not sort of slightly off-putting, where you're going into a film where it's going to leave you heartbroken. But it is a great, she's a great reflector of life. And I think, I, 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 not to take the words out of your mouth, but exactly what you have just said there, I, can, I cannot echo that enough strongly,
3: in fact. I feel kind of stupid. Before this conversation, I've never related this film to another film called Grave of the Fireflies, which I feel dumb talking about now, considering it is ex- like, extremely similar with the actual layout. As far as the prologue, you start with the end of the film, In case you don't know, it's about two children who become orphans after their town in Japan is bombed um, during World War II. And you start the film actually seeing the children die. And then the entire film, you see their journey and you know that it's going to end with them dying and you get to see that journey. And I think that where you mentioned it takes you out of the film, I think that's one of the major reasons the film works is that sense of inevitability. Because it automatically adds a weight to every single thing that's going on within the film. All the bad choices, because the film has low stakes for the majority of the movie. You, They're making, you know, not to give too many you know, like spoilers, but their actual thing that they are doing, their action, which leads to the consequences, is a very minor thing that wouldn't necessarily carry the same weight and same sense of impact and inevitability of, you know, this huge consequence at the end of the film um naturally so I think without knowing that prologue without having the sense of the stakes that are really on the table I feel like the film could have felt boring and could have felt just way too light on plot and light on conflict to where it would have actually hurt the film I think having that prologue helps add the natural weight to the rest of the movie that keeps you engaged on a level that it wouldn't do naturally if that makes sense I'm wording this terribly but
4: No, yeah, I'd also have to agree with Carson in that that prologue. I'd say really bumped it up. I'd say maybe even half a star or maybe even a full star for me. Because honestly, like I said, I already thought it was a little bit light on plot. But without that prologue to add that additional weight, it honestly could have maybe gone into the negative territory for me. Because just the fact that you know that that's the ending and that's what's going to happen kind of just gives, like Carson said, weight to the rest of the story and gives some non-consequential events really some consequence because you know where they're headed additionally matt's comment about why critics like it so much i think it might be why i don't appreciate it as much because i'd say maybe i was halfway through the movie and in my mind i was thinking okay so this is like the third the first act and it's going to ramp up and then i realized oh wait no we're halfway over because it's just real life and kind of just what's going on and i do have to say i have to compare it not in terms of just the filmmaking, but I'd say in terms of my personal opinion, compared to others with eighth grade, where it's kind of the same thing that a lot of critics really liked it because of its realistic depictions of like the main character. But since it was like, so I'd say rooted in realism, I actually, that turned me off a little bit. And like I said, I still appreciated it. I gave both seven out of 10 stars, but I didn't hold it back for me from just, getting right over that range of just really something special.
0: Um, yeah, so just to add my two pence on this whole prologue debate we're having. I agree with uh, Carson on this. I think it re- adds a real melancholic kind of free line to the whole thing. So if you think about the film as a whole, as we were saying earlier, it's fairly without drama, and it's all just kind of about these two people becoming friends. And it's such like a heartwarming, wholesome film wholly centered around just yeah this idea of male bonding in such like a difficult time and yeah that's the really the core of these people's lives in this story but all this for all the work that she does to create this atmosphere this kind of safe secure environment there's just still that niggling feeling in the back of your head throughout the whole runtime that what you've experienced in the prologue is eventually going to happen and it's this eventuality that adds a lot of the Emotion and probably, in my opinion, maybe feel more attached to the characters because there's always in the back of your head stakes are still high, even though what's actually occurring in the film isn't necessarily you know, a high-stakes scenario. Um, and I agree with the whole idea of making the mundane compelling here. I'm not really sure how she does it. I think it's a mix of creating this atmosphere in this environment. But I mean, the film opens with Cookie, well, after the prologue, it opens with Cookie just picking mushrooms in the woods. And I mean, I could watch that for another 10 minutes. I don't know why I found it so intriguing, but there's just something about, I don't know, the way it's shot. Like there's a a, a shot initially where Cookie hears a noise and he stands up and he's like completely central frame surrounded by like pine bushes and everything. It just feels so kind of vibrant and alive. And even though he's just out there picking mushrooms and you're thinking to yourself i'm watching a man just you know picking his lunch but it's just fascinating and i think reichardt does a really good job of making everyday tasks that we take for granted and would find very dull just you know you can't turn away from it let's move on to the sundance darling palm springs it's all
4: meaningless right
0: i mean
2: I hope it's not all meaningless. So what, we're just littering
3: now?
4: God, nothing. What is this guy's deal?
1: (laughs)
3: Oh, there we go. Finally. What are you doing? You know, believe it or not, I've never been arrested before. Yeah, and I'm very curious to see what it's all about. Aren't you?
2: No. No, 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 don't. I think it might be him. Him? Roy. That fucker. Don't stop. If you're not going to take care of this, someone has to. No, someone doesn't have to. We've been over this. I'm serious. I'm serious. Help! He's trying to kill
3: me! <laughs> He's trying to kill me! He's trying to kill me!
2: Sir,
3: step out of the vehicle
2: with your hands up. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Is that him? Sir, if you do not comply. I'll have no choice but to remove
4: you by Ah, uh, OK. I'm coming out. Sorry about that
0: acquired by Neon and Hulu for a reported $17.5 million, breaking the previous record for the higher sale from a film by 69 cents. Stuck in a time loop, Palm Springs follows two wedding guests who develop a budding romance while living the same day over and over again. Diego, you're reviewing this one for the site. Uh, is Palm Springs the success both distributors seem to think it is?
4: Definitely. I'd have to say that it's by far the funnest film of the year. It was actually... T- one of the few films that I'd say both engaged me and as well as many of my family members, as normally we don't agree on much, but this seems like one of those films that will just unite everyone and has something for everyone to love. Like there were quite a few kind of generic comedy things here and there, but there were also quite a few inventive ideas that kind of took the film in different directions that I really didn't expect it at all. And that really kept me hooked. But like I said, it also have has those, aspects that general audiences will like. And apart from that, it also has that, it has the major appeal that everyone would love. The only thing is that, as I know we've mentioned in previous discussions, it is released on Hulu, which does not have that much of a draw as a Netflix or a Disney Plus. And that may hold it back eventually from being a huge success as maybe Neon wanted it to be on a theatrical release. But I think for where it was released and the circumstances in which it was released, it is definitely far away, more than anyone could have have expected it to be.
1: I suppose I'll jump in here um, next. A few years ago, I made this conscious decision of just avoiding trailers. No matter what franchise, no matter what publicity, whatever, I would just avoid trailers. Sometimes that's that's a positive, and sometimes it's a negative. Because often than not, you miss quite decent amount of uh, s- cinema just purely because you never really saw anything to advertise on it. This is one of those examples for the for the for the other side of the story. I'm so glad I went into this not knowing anything. The one thing was the acquisition by Neon and Hulu, which in its own rights hilarious and on brand which I, I, I thought was quite tongue-in-cheek and a quite a little small, <laughs> touching motif. However, nonetheless, the biggest acquisition from Sundance, that it is a, that's a big thing to note. So already intrigues there. Coming away from this, I, I can't really sort of give Andy Sandberg any more plaudits he arguably deserves. I don't think I could I could say anything more than what's already been said of how good he is here. I think he's the standout. As much as I think um Kristen Milioti is 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 phenomenal. I think for, for the cast members in general, with Jake and Simmons having a, sort of a a glorified cameo. Everybody does justice to their roles. But I think it's Samberg who, you know, is coming um, you know, from the Lonely Island aesthetic, which they also produce this film. But he's also coming from Brooklyn 99. And he's been in that environment now for i think almost seven to eight years we don't really know what's going to happen with brooklyn, brooklyn 99 i mean know they're rewriting the, the season they're currently commencing to shoot and after that it's up in the air but if this is the sign from his versatility i don't i don't think I, I don't think i think this i don't think there's anything that he won't be able to do after this granted i don't think he's going to be able to do a holocaust film or something on those lines something that's incredibly heartbreaking i don't think he's not necessarily the actor who can convey emotion very well but subtlety here and drama i think he's perfect this is this is such a good vehicle for him to showcase his talents this should be his calling card on every sort of call out audition sheet if he ever gets them anymore i think he's perfect i mean not going into this not knowing the narrative twist and and on 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 hindsight what a beautiful subvert subvert expectation of genre tool that this is it, it doesn't in any way hinder itself on time travel or anything like that. It, it that is the baseline narrative development here. It focuses on character, and thank God it does. Th- this is what uh, Vivarium should have been: the uh, Jesse Eisenberg, Imogen Poots, sci-fi comedy thing that came out a few months ago. The, the Vivarium is the you know copy my copy my homework. Um, mean version of it palm springs does everything better because it doesn't highlight the tropes of convention through its narrative technique of time travel which it becomes problematic and whole a vast amount of holes pop up once you sort of pick, pick in faults with it whereas vivarium de- defines itself on that so with palm springs you're going to get a brilliant script of what, which which is here uh, because it focuses on character and it does Sandberg and Milioti have a a great, fantastic chemistry. I think together they craft a terrifically witty and heartfelt partnership. I never sort of saw them as a couple, but weirdly enough, as you experience their development and their relationship, and especially when they're coming out in the desert and they have this um, shroom-drug monologue, and there's some really poignant themes they talk about, obviously, later down the road, we sort of infer what Sandberg says to a different degree. But it's just like finding yourself in, in, enamored and engrossed with this growing and organic relationship. And when we talk about organic before and, and First Cow and how that's reflected, I think director Max um, Barberkow here does a great job of having an authentic relationship just develop. And the space of what it is, only about an hour and 42 minutes. It's, it's 110 minutes, something here, there. It doesn't feel like it. it feels. It's just a dime a dozen with pacing. I mean... Granted, I think Jacob Simmons as a as a like a glorified cameo, and I, I mean, it's funny. I mean, it, especially towards the end and seeing it, it, it sort of sets up points But there's nothing here that takes away from Sandberg and Millard and how good it is. I mean, it's it's just one of those films where it's it's an indie darling. If you could if you could ever show someone, can you show me a Sundance hit? Can you show me a South by Southwest hit? This is what I would show them. It's 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 perfect in in the way of how it encapsulates of so that indif- independent feeling. Where we go from here, with Andy Samberg is going to be very interesting. I mean, Max uh, Babacar is going to be interesting as well. But I think for what it is, and also it has, it has a brilliant soundtrack. It's going to be interesting. Where, 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 what plot does this get? Like Diego said, it, it comes from Hulu. Neon have acquired it, the rights for it as well. So maybe we'll see um, a, a distribution internationally. I'm not too sure. But it, it, it's, it's, it's something I'm, that not only excites me on a watch, but it also excites me for that potential. The one thing I have a problem with, and it's not really a problem, it's just sort of like a bug, is what Matt inferred that, that, that with Regan First Cow, it said it. I would have rather had the, the definitive ending gone and we had more of a... I, I wouldn't say it would be a sort of a downer ending. It's not necessarily a film that leaves you with that. It's, it wouldn't be a cold ending, let's say, but it's a film that would then have a talking point of if, what, and buts. And I understand regarding the genre and probably sales for that matter, it needs to have sort of like a cuddly ending. But I rather would have had it just cut to black as soon as sort of this climax happens. And these characters, I'm not going to spoil anything, they embraced in sort of this first emotional bond through physicality, which I thought was like really, really humanized and, and, and quite profound. When they, when, they, when they do eventually sort of accept the fact that they're in love with each other, if it just cut to black, I think I'd be left with more a heartwarming feeling that no matter what else happens, these two, people, these two people are happy. These two people know wherever they're gonna go. They've got each other.
4: Well, about the ending, I do have to say, you'd be surprised to hear that. I read a couple of things and apparently it was going to be even more definitive than it already was. And it wasn't until The Lonely Island came in and kind of discussed it a bit with the writers and the director, that they moved away from kind of an even more definitive ending and got to there. And I mean, they do say that it is a little bit ambiguous. That kind of end credit scene with J.K. Simmons and kind of like a regular Andy Samberg. Uh, You'd have to think, so are they in an alternate universe? are they back to normal or where exactly have they landed and will their relationship really stand the test of wherever they are? And like you said, of course, they don't want to make it super definitive. And they did say also they don't want to have it be a down ending, but I feel like it was ambiguous enough that it, it does ask some good questions, but it wasn't so out there that maybe general audiences would just be turned off. Cause I know for sure, uh, I know a lot of people who if it had ended right there, although that would be a perfect ending. They would have, that would have
3: immediately just ruined their opinion of the film and that would be that. It's kind of hard to follow up considering, I mean, you guys have mentioned pretty much like all my points and it is just overall like a nearly flawless film. I think where it does lack some of the emotional depth to really become like a five-star masterpiece for me, it is also hard to look at the film and say that there's a bunch of issues within it. The acting is great. The screenplay is great. The cinematography, some of the shot composition is breathtakingly beautiful for a comedy. You know, a lot of comedies, you know, tend to just go with lazy filmmaking, a lot of those a lot of the comedies Um, but this one just has a sense of cinematic charm to it that is really unexpected and beautiful but one thing i just want to point out is how well they use the concept of being stuck in a time loop the film is obviously very aware of the groundhog day references and already in the conversation it seems like when people are trying to sell this film they try to say oh it's like groundhog's day Um, And I think when you have a very specific gimmick like that, that has been used so iconically in the past, it's very easy just to throw it in there and have it be this very boring concept that doesn't really go anywhere. It doesn't add much to the film and is used more as a lazy plot device. But I thought they actually explored it in some depth that was really interesting and some of the more moral questions of, you know, what happens if, you know, what does relationships mean? You know, how does happiness work? How does depression work? Um, The concept of death, what is meaningless? The sense of loneliness that comes with the concept. They're all elements that are not really explored in Groundhog's Day nearly as much. And I love the evolution of this gimmick to where it's beyond just that of a gimmick. I did see this at Sundance with no preparation,
2: no advertising, no trailer, nothing. Just knew that it was Andy Samberg, Lonely Island production starring Chris Emiliati, who um, I I, I think that she deserves equal amount of praise as Andy Samberg does in this. I think she is phenomenal. And the movie charmed the hell out of me. I really, really enjoyed it. I think it's no uh, mistake that the character's name is Niles and this movie really deals in nihilism so much uh, with the meaninglessness of uh, life. And it explores these thematic questions that uh, make the movie uh, not just a funny film and a romantic movie, but also a heady one too without getting so far deep into it that it distracts from its charm and what it ultimately is trying to accomplish, which is just simply to entertain us. I really, really like this movie a lot. Um, It's very hard for me to find flaws with it. I also think it like J.K. Simmons' role in this might be my favorite since Whiplash. Um, He tends to be a solid stand-in in in a lot of movies that he does, but he never is that memorable. And it was just really great to see him cut loose in some of these comedic scenes, but also to have a very poignant uh, third act scene with Sandberg that really helped to drive the emotion of the story home and really crystallize a lot of the themes that it was playing with. So I deeply enjoyed this movie i have been recommending it to pretty much everyone that i know that has a hulu account just as something to watch but i also think too it has the power by accident to really resonate with us um during this time where uh there's a pandemic a lot of us are stuck indoors doing the same thing over and over and over again every single day and i think that in that regard um the loneliness the isolation and the meaninglessness maybe of life at the moment are Themes that we can all really connect to uh, at this time, and yeah, uh, that's kind of a happy accident or unhappy accident, however you want to view it. But it's there and it's unavoidable, and I think that it will make this movie resonate for people a lot.
1: It might be a catch twenty two predicament. I might answer my own my own question here, but I just want to throw this out to the group, especially get Matt's opinion on it because he watched it at Sundance. It'd be interesting to see what the fallout's been. The Lonely Island aesthetic and the and the comedic sensibility, it is here and it's used really well, but it's not dependent upon. I think there's one scene where Addie Sandberg's character, there's like a flashback community which where you know they're talking about who he's had sex with throughout this, which is a little it's it's like a sort of a it's an indication of, of how long he's been there, which is it's quite a nice narrative tool. But there's there's a, a small little sort of scene where he implies that he's he's had sex of the bride's father. And it's just this small sort of intimate scene, but it's directed really well. I, I mean it's it's really intimate and it cuts away as a comedic joke. And I found that well that's definitely a lonely island aesthetic. That's definitely something. Um I, I, I did I was expecting more of that and this is where my, my question comes up. I was expecting more of that and I didn't receive that. But that, I don't think that's a detriment. I think it helps the film solidify itself rather than leaning on um this Lonely island um sort of depiction of, of comedy. My only issue is, and I know I spoke about Sandberg a little bit, bit further, that I'm really excited to see what Sandberg does after this, romantic comedy-wise or purely just comedy, but more sort of the drama, because I think he's, he, he uses poignancy quite well here, arguably that's via the script, but nonetheless I think he conveys it really well. It, Most people are going to come here, they're going to come from the Lonely Island, they're going to come from the Andy Samberg brand. My issue is that, do you think that's a detriment to how good his performance is here with how he handles drama? And do you think this will find a new home for him or not?
2: I love Andy Samberg's comedy. I think that his performance in Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping, is one of the great comedic performances of the last decade. Um, And that's a very grossly underrated film. I think this is his best overall performance in showcasing his strengths. He's not, as you said before, somebody that you would put in a highly dramatic movie. Um, He would feel very out of place. And unless if he... Gave a truly transformative performance uh, with an excellent script and excellent direction to aid him. I don't think we would be able to buy him in that type of setting. However, I think this is a type of case where the material really caters to um, his strengths from a comedic side, from a charming standpoint, but also to, yeah, there is a little bit of dramatic work going on there, but it's not the dominating aspect. I. I'm not going to say that this is one of the like best performances I've seen this year. He might get a golden globe nomination, musical comedy, um, you know, for, for this. And I I think it would be, I think it would be deserved if it happens, but at the end of the day, I, I don't consider this to be a revelation or like a, Oh my God, like I'm not, I'm not blown away by it. I, I think it's a great utilization and I think it worked out well, but this isn't by no means for me, like, a second coming for Andy Samberg. I, I am curious to see what he does, but I think he's going to stick within his lane and maybe explore, um, other topics with a degree of maturity as he continues to get older. I, but I don't see him veering off course.
4: Yeah, I'd actually agree with that. And I'd actually ex- kind of take that point and kind of think, sorry. I actually agree with that. And I really do think that also kind of reflects the film in general. Cause yeah, like it was some, it's, it was really good. It was for what it was trying to be. It was really good, but just the film as a whole, while, yeah, it was great and a fun time. I don't think it was a certain revelation or anything like that. Like it's a certain, it's a good first time film. It's a great debut, but I really do think that for anyone there to make like a true impact on the broader industry, it does need they do need a couple more steps to get there but for a like it's the first time andy sandberg has had a leading role since pop star i believe uh the directors i think it was his first feature film same with the writer and i think christine and i think kristin same as and i think Kristen as well that's her first kind of leading role apart from wolf of wall street although that was kind of minor but i do think it's a great first step but I'd say everyone does have a little bit more to go before they truly are able to kind of break out in not only the comedic side of the industry, but the industry as a whole.
0: Um, I haven't seen the film itself, but it seems like from what I've heard, this is very much going to be a launch pad for everyone involved here. I mean, being the biggest seller Sundance really doesn't go unnoticed, especially in, you know, times in lockdown where it's being released on Hulu and everyone's got their eyes on it and it's easily accessible. Um, I'm slightly skeptical about watching this after hearing your thoughts less so, but I'm very, I'm very cold on time loop films. I like spouting unpopular opinions on this podcast. So I'll say that I really don't like Groundhog Day and think it's unbelievably dull, but um, I'm keen to check this one out and see how it differs from there. I was going to ask if it kind of reinvents this time loop formula, but it sounds like it really does. So I'm looking forward to seeing how it does that. It has Um, a unique twist on it where it's not, one person that
2: is experiencing it and i think that that kind of helps aid in the connectivity of people bonding over a shared experience which aids into the romance and um even the relationship that jk simmons has with andy samberg in this movie i'm so sorry you haven't seen it by the way because i do feel like we gave some spoilers uh in this conversation but um uh, and I wasn't aware of that. Otherwise, I would have chose my words maybe a little more carefully. But in any event, though, I highly recommend you check it out regardless of the uh, premise.
1: No, I will be. Just that's to. A,
0: that's sorry,
1: just, nice to echo, just to echo Matt, regarding the, the time loop, it doesn't... It, even, this is going to sound slightly contradictory, but even though the, the time loop is integral to the plot, it doesn't define itself by it, right? which is... The, I think it, it should be noted that if you're going into this, for the time travel aspect yes it's there but beyond anything else it's a character driven story that happens to find these i won't say anymore it happens to find characters inside this realm so don't worry about um about uh, about defining itself like a ground or because i think i think like as carsten said it it is the easiest comparison to make but it's nothing like it if that makes sense it's very it's it def- I think that's one of the, the plaudits I have for, it. I know I'm going to reach it myself, but it's, its it is, it doesn't define itself and trying to trouble logistics. And it gets out of that hole, if you will, of, of digging, digging deep, digging deep, well, let, let's try to find a reason to get out of it, which is a theme of the film, I'm not going to lie. However, that's caveated by the characters, which then have another decision to make together, that's all I'll say. So it's, it's always there. It's always lingering in the background, but it's only there to support the issues of character and development of that character development, if that makes
0: sense. Cosign. Um, but yeah, no, carrying on from there. So yeah, I'm obviously very much looking forward to watching this now. Um, talking about Andy Sandberg's future, I do agree that he's a very promising comedian. I mean, I've been a fan of him since he was on SNL, but I do run a little bit hot and cold on him as well with his recent projects. Uh, I think Brooklyn Nine-Nine falls into the kind of sitcom trappings that I'm not a huge fan of. Um, But then again, Popstar, I think, is just a great example of that type of comedy working really, really well on a mass scale, even though that is somehow an underrated film. I don't really know how a film like that goes under the radar. It seems like it'd be quite a popular choice, but um, apparently not. Uh, But regarding his future career, if I was to guess how he might eventually turn out, I see... A kind of Americanized Simon Pegg esque career for Andy Sandberg in the future. I think he does these kind of goofy comedies with his home team, Lonely Island, like Simon Pegg did with Edgar Wright and the Cornetto trilogy, and then kind of broadens out. Maybe he does like some kind of comedic roles in larger, uh, budget, higher profile films, or he scales back and does some more indie stuff like Celine and Jesse Forever, which he did a few years ago. I think he's got a lot of range as you guys were saying i don't think he's ever going to be an actor who transitions completely from comedy to drama but i think he is one of those guys who can kind of linger on the borders and just appear in some high profile stuff in the future so i'm looking forward to seeing what happens
1: just to add upon that rory it's an interesting thing i i don't think in like 50 years we'll see andy sandberg become this dramatic way actor who's on the cusp of winning an, an academy award but what I will say is that the comparisons to him and his, a, a career trajectory, I don't think he's so dissimilar to what's happening with Sandler now. I think for a while, it took Sandler to realize that he was capable of doing something like the Meyerowitz stories, or um, you know, this, re-teaming, this teaming up with Paul Thomas Anderson, which I can only imagine being sort of relatively in the circle in 2002, 3, and 4. To see Paul Thomas Anderson go for a magnolia to work on Punch Drunk Love with Adam Sandler, I mean, I think it's something they laughed at him when he announced it. I mean, that's how ridiculous it was. And looking back now, I mean, it's it's arguably Tom uh, Podzman's most intimate piece of work. But the comparison with Sandler, what I've just said, I find really interesting because Sandler took a while to get into that gear, whereas Sandberg seems to have already achieved that and is already showcasing signs for that. I don't think Andy Sandberg could do an Uncut Gems. I don't think Andy Sandberg could probably do a funny people but I think Sandberg could most definitely do a Witt stories and I think he's I think this is I don't know if this is hyperbolic I do apologize I think this is his puncturing love I think it's one of those moments where we'll look back and it'll be the 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 turning point of understanding that he's capable more so of just being this loud obnoxious comedian on Brooklyn Nine-Nine I think we're going to find out a lot more from this so I'm, I'm very looking forward to see what he does.
0: Last but certainly not least, let's move on to our thoughts and potential nomination picks for the Academy Awards with everything we've seen halfway through the year. So Matt, I feel like when it comes to the Oscars, you are the uh, the leading authority in this group. So uh, what are your thoughts on what's been a pretty tumultuous year for cinema? I mean, you just said it yourself, nobody
2: knows anything. And you know, that's true of every Oscar year where we usually don't really know anything and the race can always uh change um you know at any second and momentum can uh shift this year is the most unique that i think any of us have ever seen in our lifetime because we're in a situation where a lot of these movies that do release at the end of the year some of them weren't completed by the time the pandemic hit and production has been unable to resume. Um, one of my uh, colleagues, uh, Clayton Davis over at awards circuit has said many times, one of the last things that a movie uh, gets done is film scoring. And you can't put a bunch of people in a room with their instruments to do a film score. So you have a lot, a lot of problems right now with movies that probably were going to get released in November, December of that, are not finished and not ready so there's been an extension this year uh which is already something that i'm not a fan of uh but there's been a two-month extension for january february where if your film gets released in january february it will qualify for the 2020 film year oscars i don't like this because i don't like confusing the timeline and i also think it shows a lack of faith on the academy that movies that have been released like a first cow. Or even a Palm Springs, they don't see that as your typical Oscar contender, which is something that people like myself are always trying to, uh, you know, break that mold and try to try to get people to realize that there is cinematic quality in all types of movies, not just your typical awards bait film. So it would be really great if the Oscars could embrace genre, like horror, for example and the smaller independent movies but it seems that all the decisions that they're making are being catered towards trying to get the typical movies that are in the oscar race still into the oscar race this year the one studio that remains unaffected by all of this is netflix netflix's movies are all in the can they are all ready they're all coming out as they were supposed to and this could be the year when Netflix finally wins Best Picture because, let's also face it, in a year where we were all sitting at home, what were most of us doing? We were opening up Netflix and watching Netflix content. So Netflix has kind of helped a lot of us stay sane during this wacky and crazy time. And I think that that was something that they should use to their advantage. I think they should really, really kind of push that narrative through that without Netflix content... Um, you know what would this time have looked like for all of us and i think that's going to ring true when they're big contenders like the trial of the chicago 7 the aaron sorkin uh, written and directed movie or mank the new film from david Fincher. when these get released there should definitely be some talk about that outside of the quality of the films themselves outside of all of that who the hell knows seriously like who the hell knows anyone that tells you they think they know what's going on myself included doesn't know we don't uh tenant could keep getting pushed out over and over and over and over and over and over and over over again to the point where it doesn't even meet the eligibility window potentially because they are so dead set on getting that theatrical release because from a business standpoint they needed to otherwise they're going to lose money so the idea of a movie like that going directly to streaming and avoiding theatrical altogether just doesn't make any sense also to keep this in mind Maybe it's not a bad idea for these movies to keep getting pushed out to 2021. You know why? There's no movie slated for 2021 other than the movies that are getting pushed from 2020 into 2021 because there's nothing in production right now. So there's, 2021 is going to look like a barren wasteland of movies. So maybe it's not a bad idea for all these large movies to keep getting pushed. And these smaller movies, the first cows, um, the smaller indie films, even though they're not a joker, like last year, or in 1917, where it's big in scale and epic and made all this money. I mean, have the Oscars be what the film year was. Don't try to contort it and twist it into what you want it to be. Have it just be a reflection of what this was for us this year. And what this has been is it's been a year of streaming, VOD, smaller movies that typically do not get this level of attention. I can tell you this right now over at next best picture, we're reviewing a ton of movies that normally in a given film year, we would not be reviewing. We wouldn't be touching it, but we're just starving for content so much that we're watching movies that we know deep down. Yes, it's probably not going to be good, but we're watching it because what else do we have left? So I think that the Oscars should reflect that this year. Um, As far as contenders go, I mean, listen, there are the ones on paper that make sense. Uh, as I would tell you in a normal year but who knows if they're even coming out so that's my that's my long opening statement (laughs) (laughs) no yeah and
4: I do have to go off of that point you said about kind of observing more indie or genre films and I do have to say there are quite a few that obviously in my personal opinion are worthy of it but Honestly, the Academy won't, will never go for films like that. Like For instance, Last and First Men, great, great film, seen by no one. It's very, I wouldn't necessarily say, it would kind of border on experimental, but it does have those qualities that could get genre fans to really like it. And I'd say same with, honestly, The Wanting Mayor, both hugely unlikely picks to get into the Oscars, but with the content that we have now, if they have the budget to make a push, those could possibly go far if marketed correctly. However, if those theoretical if those if those theatrical releases don't get pushed back into 2021, I do think apart from maybe like you said, Netflix finally winning Best Picture, if Tenet runs with that narrative of saving cinema and it comes in time for 2020, even if it's in November or December, I really do think if it's as revolutionary as many of the insiders are saying, which that could be a marketing technique, but knowing Nolan, that could very well be true. If the script is truly out of this world, if it's honestly, it it has a structure that is so revolutionary, like Parasite last year, that just takes everyone by storm. That tenant, that with, that along with the narrative of it's saving cinema could honestly push it to definitely a best picture nomination. And in my opinion, it could go into a Best Picture win if
2: marketed correctly. I don't want you guys to get your hopes up about Christopher Nolan, Tenet. The Oscars have shown time and time again that they are willing to nominate his movies uh, because he is a high-profile director that does make quality blockbuster entertainment with some engaging ideas and some um themes and storytelling techniques that have never been seen before but at the end of the day this is still the academy they don't go for genre they don't go for action they don't go for i mean if you're gonna do and people will say to me oh what about what shape of water that is a very sophisticated fantasy movie that harkens back to classic cinema like douglas Sirk, as guillermo del toro said and that is stuff that they eat up so everything there is no hard rule necessarily you got to take everything um in pieces and look at it individually and ask yourself okay Lupita Nyong'o is clearly the best performance by a leading actress from last year for us why was she not nominated you could say so many different things you could say early release date back in February you could say um you could pull the race card You, you really could uh, you could pull the horror genre card, um, and you know, a, 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 and listen. Anyone that's going to tell you this year, oh, Elizabeth Moss and in The Invisible Man, she's great in that movie. Great performance. It's excellent. She is fantastic in it. But look at Tony Collette and Lupita Nyong'o, and you're really going to sit there and tell me that Elizabeth Moss, even with this year being what it is, you really, really think that she'll get that nomination? Absolutely not. I'm like really sorry to crush people's hopes and dreams, but keep in mind this extended eligibility window for january february is specifically designed so stuff like that does not happen because that wouldn't happen in a normal year and what the academy is afraid of is the academy is truly afraid of movies that nobody has seen making up their nominations this year and i say that because at the end of the day they are still a business that has to put on a show that has to sell ads that needs to pay for this academy museum that they opened up that's costing them a fortune. It's a very, very risky, tight rope uh, scenario that they're in right now and they've gotta be supremely careful of what it is that they're doing. It's, it's unfortunate, but it's the world that we live in right now. And you know, maybe next year will be different, who knows, until a vaccine is uh, created for COVID-19. Um, this is our new reality.
3: You mentioned this is a very strange year and i think there's a ton of topics that people are just not talking about such as the switch from physical screeners and physical press media to going all digital uh, but one of the big points of talk, uh, one big talking point is the extended eligibility window. Not only does this allow things like Sundance to come into factor like never before. Mm-hmm. Um, the Eternals are not, is now eligible for visual effects if it keeps its release date. So they're all those little things. But also mm-hmm. it was already difficult for films from the beginning half of the year to get nominated. Now they have to stay in the conversation for an extra two months for the nomination, multiple months for a win immediately that took out any hope for films like Emma, Ben Affleck and The Way Back, where if it was that normal year where maybe there is not that solid lineup, maybe Ben Affleck could sneak in. Maybe Emma could sneak in for costume design. That Mm -hmm. all went immediately out the window. Um, So I really think when you look at the beginning of the year and what really could get nominated, it's very limited. I think for animated feature, the uh, Willow Bees from Netflix has a decent decent shot considering Mm -hmm. Netflix, we know they can do a good campaign. Uh, I think Onward has it pretty much locked in. It's Disney and animated films more and more dropping out to next year. So that's already looking like it's possibly gonna be a weak lineup to get in. Um, And I have this weird feeling that Sonic the Hedgehog, despite it now having to stay in the conversation for over a year, I have a strange feeling that could earn some merit for visual effects with them actually going in and tweaking the visual effects and changing it. I'm, that's definitely not something I'm like confident it's getting in. But it, if there is one that's not animated feature that I think could get in from the beginning of this year, the strange feeling, it's going to be Sonic. But overall, I would say looking at award contenders as of right now, there's also the five bloods. I don't think that's going to make it in anywhere, sadly. Um, but a no, to Roy Lindo is by far like the most oh, standout best actor performance.
2: I think we've seen in the first half of the year. And I think if anything, I actually genuinely do believe that that performance does have the legs and the capability of outlasting uh, the length of this season. I I I agree that before the eligibility announcement, Defy Bloods looked like it could have been a picture sound. Uh, you know, there were there were so many options that that you know in terms of nominations for that film. But now it's Delroy Lindo or Bust, and I know that's going to make a lot of people upset to hear that because Spike has a very devoted following, but. You know, I'm not, I I always have this saying all the time, uh, prediction does not equal advocacy. Um, I don't predict things with a hope that if I predict it, I'm willing it to happen. I predict based on trends. I predict based on behaviors of the past and I take the year as it is. And I look at what that year looks like. And once again, I I also can't tell you exactly what's going to happen because nobody can, but knowing the Academy, as we do, and the types of stuff that they go for, their attention span typically does not go further back in the first half of the year, unless if it's something truly, truly outstanding that really, really stands out in a major way. And when you really take in the first half of the year into a whole, the one thing that really does, I think, stand out amongst all of the film releases that we did have the first half of the year is Delroy Lindo's uh, performance in *Defy Five Bloods.
3: I'm interested. Do you have him in your personal lineup right now for who you think is getting in?
2: Uh, I do. Yeah. He's. A, it's also like a career thing for him in a lot of ways. You know, it's an actor who's never really gotten that level of recognition before. It's got Netflix behind it. So you know, there's going to be a campaign and a push. They're, they're going to make sure that people do not forget uh, that performance. And the quality of the performance is there. He's got so many meaty scenes in that movie that uh, actors would look at and be like, wow, like that's an incredible performance. So.
0: um
4: Um, i do have to ask do you think he's going to be nominated or actually win because in my
2: opinion he does have the
4: legs for a nomination but yeah yeah
2: Yeah, i don't know no no, not a win uh but then again also too it's too early to say right now i don't like talking about wins i never like talking about wins the only thing i even feel slightly remotely like i don't even want to say confident but like The only thing I'm like close to saying with confidence is soul winning uh, Best Animated Feature if it comes out. That's like the only thing I'm willing to say. Otherwise, at this point, it's like all just speculation. So I I would much rather concentrate on nominations at this point and talk about wins
3: later. I will quickly throw out with Delroy Lindo, one interesting point of conversation with his character is the fact that between now and the Academy Awards, we do have an election. And especially with what that character represents and the narrative they're trying to tell with that character depending on how the election goes and what the general feeling is after that, I could see that either benefiting or hurting that character in that nomination. So I think that's something just to keep in mind, is how big that election is really going to play in all this. Also with things like The Trial of the Chicago 7, um, I mean, there's multiple films that really their success, one of the big points of that is deciding factor is going to be the election, how America feels at that point.
2: Don't ever underestimate what that election did uh, four years ago, with La, La Land and Moonlight, do, do not underestimate uh, that. That is such a good point. That in election years, depending on what happens, what the mood of people's mindset is when they actually go to cast a vote, you better believe that outside factors of what's going on in the world today influences a vote. I mean considering considering when Defy Bloods came out and everything that was happening in the country with the protests and such around the Black Lives Matter movement, D- D- Defy Bloods would have ran away with best Picture if the Oscars were held at that time, like easily, no doubt, in my mind, you know, so you gotta take that into in, into effect. So in terms of talking about wins, I, I will I personally also I personally won't be comfortable. I won't feel comfortable talking about wins until uh november 3rd
0: um i wanted to say how the oscars have changed a lot in the last few years when we think about it so we've gone hostless for the last two years if i'm correct on that and it's seriously changed kind of the way the show runs but that's purely on a kind of moment-to-moment scale what we're talking about here is changing eligibility for a whole year does this also mean that oscars 2022 are going to pushback is this is a permanent pushback of eligibility here or is it just for this year
2: uh everything that they have done in regards to them saying streaming titles uh, without the, the traditional two-week theatrical release um are eligible the eligibility they have all said this is just for this year and there are other changes that they have made that will take um effect the following year such as the expansion back to 10 Best Picture nominees, a hard 10. None of this five between 10 crap that they have now. But depending, like I said, on if there's a vaccine or not in our future, those rules uh, could carry over to the next year. They have to make an announcement uh, saying that. Uh, But right now, everybody, the studios, publicists, uh, the Oscars, everybody is taking in news as it's being released to them and they are making decisions at the last minute on everything. Things are constantly changing all the time. For all we know, keep this in mind for all we know, if a lot of these bigger movies get pushed out, like if soul keeps getting pushed out, if tenant keeps getting pushed out and all of a sudden we're getting close to the end of the year, that eligibility window is closing in. The studios will have to make a decision and i can tell you this right now they're not going to release movies like that digitally they're just not I, i i cannot for the life of me see that happening and i think it's also good because like i said it does give uh us stuff to look forward to in 2021 hopefully you hope right but yeah, man, this is just a clusterfuck. <laughs> There's no other way to put it at the end of the day. Uh, and also keep this in mind too. Like I, my, my, my point being, if things just keep getting pushed out, are the Oscars going to dig their heels in the ground and say, okay, we're going to keep this date. I guess even though we didn't get these high profile movies released, we're still going to honor uh, the movies that did get released and we'll just see how the general public reacts to that and hope for the best. Or are they going to just i don't know i don't know what the alternative is you know but we don't know we just don't know
0: cuz um yeah i mean i i was thinking earlier and i don't think it's as much of a secret anymore obviously when we were all younger we used to think that the oscars were kind of the staple of quality but now it's definitely winning an oscar is more of a business strategy for the production company and the distribution company than it is actual the highest quality film that year if that can even be quantified.
2: Yeah, I think it's very very smart to not look at the Oscars as the be all all dollar use it for any validation purposes, for anything that you have going on in your life because uh it, it, it can be a very negative place to be in when it doesn't go the way that you want it to go. So I think it's best to view the Oscars as a game. I think it's best to view them as uh politics almost like a like a political race if you will, but with less stakes, you know the life of the country is not on the line if a uh, parasite were to lose best picture to 1917, you know? All right, fine. Green book won. I, I would have preferred something else would have won, but did the world end? No, if anything, I think that anytime the Oscars make an unpopular choice, I think it's an opportunity for it to bring about a deeper conversation and there can be hopefully greater learns that we could take away from those decisions that will in turn make us all better people. We are not perfect, we are all flawed, and we are always going to fuck up some way, somehow. This is an inevitability, and the Oscars fuck up as well. So them going from Green Book to Parasite last year, you know, it, it's great, and I'm and everybody u- uniformly agreed. It was amazing. Uh, we still don't get female directors nominated on a consistent uh, basis, we still have never had a black filmmaker win Best Director, even though they are getting nominated a little bit more frequently over the last decade or so. There are still things that need to happen, and a consistency—not just oh, we did it once, and you know we're done with that. There needs to be a consistency uh, with that, and I think that's when you will hopefully see the change that you want to see from them, and then you can start talking about the validation aspects. But until then. Um, expect to always be disappointed by the Oscars because we're always disappointed by people generally in life anyway.
0: (laughs) But yeah, continuing that thread, I completely agree that this is definitely the year of streaming. You only need to look at this week's releases. I mean, on the 10th of July, Netflix dropped The Old Guards, Apple dropped Greyhound, Hulu dropped Palm Springs. Whilst maybe one or none of them are going to be Oscar contenders, it just goes to show how big this Area of the market has become, and how high profile everything is, and I feel like it's almost disingenuous not to, not for the Oscars not to just sit back and keep to a regular release date and acknowledge that this is the year that was different. But for some reason, they can't really accept that. It's it really a little can. interesting too because
2: you ask yourself if a movie has a budget of ten million, maybe less, fifteen million, and let's say hypothetically it gets sold to one of the streaming services for twenty million, okay. So they make a little bit of profit on it. The question then becomes, do the studios want to hold on to these movies for a hopeful eventual theatrical release that may or may not come anytime soon in hopes of getting a ton of money? Or are they looking to just get some money now? And I do think with a lot of the smaller movies uh, that the the studios have, Trial of the Chicago 7 is a great example where Paramount probably saw that as this is our prestige movie. Uh, that we're going to release at the end of the year. This is our best picture movie. But right now, they can't, they, they're, the big studios are not thinking about Oscars. They really aren't. They're thinking about what is the most amount of profit that they can possibly get from these movies. And they saw that as, let's sell that so we do get some profit and we get something out of it. And, you know, everybody's expecting to take a loss this year compared to what they normally would get. But everybody still wants to get positive. I think everybody's mentality is even if we're positive a little bit this year, um, that's still better than being negative. No. So let's sell it. Let's make a profit. um, And let's focus on the big ones that can net us a wider, larger profit for later on down the road. And I think you're going to continue to see that trend with Hulu, Amazon, Apple, Apple. Netflix picking up these smaller movies from the
3: studios that they were hoping to release uh, later on this year. I think one thing when it comes to this conversation of Netflix and a lot of people are saying oh they're going to sweep the Oscars and stuff I could see the mindset with a lot of especially the older Academy members if there are those theatrical releases out there even if it's not all of them let's say some of them get released I could see with how this year has gone with the bizarre conflict between Trolls World Tour and like AMC and this whole conversation of moving from the theatrical experience to VOD. I could see a population of the Academy rallying against theatrical films as like a statement with that, against VOD. The Academy historically are not that great with changing norms and challenging the norms of the film industry. And I could see, I think a lot of people are saying, oh yeah, automatically Netflix is probably going to get the win. And yes, there were issues and like, yes, they've come close before. I think there were other issues with Roma and other issues with the campaign specifically of Irishman and marriage story which hurt them from potentially you know becoming that front runner for best picture but let's say Mank or the trial of Chicago 7 really has that perfect campaign and it really can get up there to where it's like a front runner status i could see enough of the academy if there are other theatrical contenders specifically going with theatrical contenders specifically to make a statement that they stand with that experience and the theatrical experience therefore costing netflix i think that's a very like real possibility at least i could see whether that population is enough to make it to where it would sway it's unclear, but that is something I think I'm very cautious of when it comes to this award season and Netflix potentially taking specifically Best Picture. They've proven they'll give the other awards to, you know, Netflix, but Best Pe- but Best Picture is still that, like, crown trophy that Netflix is not, or any really streaming service has been unable to grab, and I'm just worried the Academy is going to reject them specifically for that reason.
4: Yeah, I originally stated that Tenant might be be the movie that the Academy catalyzer they that but looking at some of the possible releases another good candidate for that would be um a24's minari which a24 apart from this week's first cow which was kind of released earlier in the year they've been really consistent about saying no we will push back our releases until they can get in theaters because we want them in theaters and honestly seeing that it, minari could especially with some of it themes of immigration. I haven't seen it personally, but especially with how the election goes and what ends up happening with that, Minari could get at least a nomination and possibly a win. I'm not sure about that, as you said, yet. We do have to wait a long time to see about that, but for sure nomination. And as you mentioned, Marriage Story and Irishman kind of canceling each other out. Honestly, the fact that Mank and Trial of Chicago 7 are both from Netflix depending how Netflix runs those campaigns and their first time running a kind of like a two-movie campaign didn't really work out. If they don't change their strategy this year, those could end up canceling each other out for picture because I do think Mank is that traditional picture winner and Trial of Chicago 7 with the election could be super topical, but they could cancel each other out. And if the Academy doesn't want to go with that genre pick in Tenet and they do want to say with theatrical releases i think minari could be a great candidate for that
2: Um, i'm starting to think that the best picture uh winner might be a movie that's on nobody's radar um the same way green book was not on anybody's radar uh until it premiered at tiff uh two years ago i say this because everything that we do talk about even though there are uh, reasons to say that they could win, as you just said a second ago there at Diego. There's also reasons for why they may not as as well. And there hasn't been uh, yet a contender that feels so far and ahead of the pack. And I think that when we get to the Fall Film Festivals, digital, in person, whatever it ends up being, I think that will help a lot in terms of us trying to look at what is a potential Best picture movie. Uh, Another trend that I'm noticing lately, and I even noticed it in myself most recently, is I find that a lot of critics are grading on a curve with a lot of movies that they would have been a lot more harsh against uh, in a normal film year. But it's because, once again, we're starving for content so badly uh, that a movie that would have gotten slaughtered by critics – is being hailed as something really incredible and great because at the end of the day uh we're just happy to have anything right now i'm not going to name examples of this uh because i don't want to get too far in the weeds with that but it i think is going to yield some very interesting opinions takes and results uh when we do start to see some more of these um fall film festival uh movies get released yeah i do have to say
4: that quite a few especially in the last couple of weeks Quite a few releases that I honestly from the trailers would think would get panned really easily have actually ended up having pretty positive Rotten Tomatoes scores, which really just it kind of like floored me because I really didn't expect that this year. But honestly, saying what you've said about starting for content, I could really see why that happened.
0: Um, I'm going to be really interested to see how going backtracking a little bit here, how Mank performs with the Oscars. Because as Diego was saying, it's very much a traditional shoe in for nominations because it's correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a kind of Orson Welles golden era Hollywood story that we're focusing on here. Right. Directed by David Fincher. So it's got that prestige talent behind the camera. And I'm assuming in front of I can't remember who's starring in it. But, Gary Oldman. Um, Gary Oldman. Yeah. So I'm going to be really interested to see how the Oscars react to that film purely because it exists on a streaming platform.
2: I also, I think a couple of different things. I, I, you know, I've been saying this since last year. I think this idea of Netflix being seen as the enemy by the industry is very old at this point. Because I think that if you look at Netflix's actions in giving films theatrical runs, really promoting the filmmakers visions giving them creative control you see how many filmmakers are willing to work with netflix because they're not feeling as um, held back as they are with the other major studios and then people just assume oh well it's going to go straight to streaming and no one's ever going to talk about it and like so on and so forth and it's killing cinema because it's going to prevent people from ever going to the theater people go to the theater to see these netflix movies i know a lot of people that went to see the irishman in a theater instead of watching it at home and yeah maybe that is the way that a majority of america will see it but at the end of the day i think it's a testament to netflix that they're not just giving uh some of these movies the theatrical window for the oscar consideration but they actually are expanding them to more theaters in certain cases playing beyond those two weeks and they may not make a tremendous amount of money and they're probably doing it obviously at a loss but because they are doing it at a loss and they are giving them expansions beyond just a two-week qualifying window, Like, doesn't that speak actions-wise that they are committed to the theatrical experience as much as they are the digital? And I've heard this from the horse's mouth. The answer is yes. They want to give audiences the ability to choose. Make a choice. Do you want to go see our film in the theater? Do you want to watch it at home? The choice is up to you. We're not going to tell you what to do. And I, I think that's a great thing. I, 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 Anytime I hear this talk about, oh, Netflix, you know, shot the bed last year, uh, you know, with their uh, results at the Oscars, you know, Irishman going over 10 and such, no best picture win yet again. I say to myself, yo, they got two Best Picture nominations last year, uh, more than what they got the previous year before with just Roma getting in. Uh, While Roma did win uh, three high profile awards, Netflix still did win, they won documentary. They won uh, supporting actress for Laura Dern. And at the end of the day, the films that they promoted got the exposure That they wanted which led to the subscribers it kept them in the conversation and it's going to lead to more future projects to develop and build upon i see it as a win if you want to see it as a negative um that's fine but that's also taking into account that you think that their number one priority is they want to win best picture well yes they want to win best picture who doesn't want to win best picture that's not the be-all end-all goal here at the end of the day uh for everybody so i think with that. Mentality, I think with the way the year is shaping out, I think with the contenders they have, Mank definitely is the one that I would say, yes, have that have that checked off right now as your default front runner for the time being. But depending on the, the quality of the trial of the Chicago seven and how relevant it turns out to be, and with the the election uh, and how that goes, you know, like I said, so many things need to happen. So many things. So it's so early right now to talk about wins. Let's just talk about nominations. Let's talk about what stands a chance and what stands a great chance is things like French Dispatch, Wes Anderson, previously uh, nominated uh, before for Isle of Dogs and Animated Grand Budapest Hotel Best Picture nomination. Boom, that should be in the conversation. Tenet, Christopher Nolan, Dunkirk. Uh, Tenet also having this narrative profile that we talked about. Yes, have that uh, checked off. Soul, Pete Doctor. Uh previous nominee uh you know for best picture with up inside out didn't quite get there, but maybe in this year, maybe an animated film can get back in the lineup again. Have that in the conversation. You know, it's like ha- let's talk about like right now just the conversation of what films are in contention. Let's not jump ahead to wins just yet. Cause believe me, we're not there. We're just not there. <laughs>
0: Um, If we're going to talk about what's in contention looking to the future, something that I feel like we talk about quite a lot on this podcast, and I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but I'm really intrigued to what you think of its chances here, if we even see it this year. Um, What are your thoughts on Dune and the Academy? I knew that was coming. Uh, (laughs) Everybody wants to always talk about
2: Denis. Uh, Okay, so Dune I think is sight unseen, obviously. I think Dune stands the chance to be um, if financially successful, a big hit with the Academy from a design standpoint, you know, things like visual effects, costumes, makeup, sound, the score by Hans Zimmer, who knows. Right. But all of that sight unseen, like makes sense. I think it's very likely that it will go the Blade Runner 2049 route where, It's not a best picture contender, uh, but it gets technical uh, nominations and maybe a win or two. I think it's even more likely that Denis Villeneuve doesn't receive as enthusiastic a response for Dune as he has with his previous films because it is such a hard, hard story to adapt. It's been adapted before, it didn't do well. And there are so many people I know still to this day that cannot read that book. They try and they just can't get through it. The proof is in the pudding there that it's very tricky material to adapt. If he does it well, I think it's going to do really well. If the story is the story and people still can't get into it and it doesn't translate well, that movie is going to have a supremely hard time breaking through anything outside of
3: technical nominations at that point. I'll throw out two movies that I kind of see like bouncing in and out of the conversation right now. One is Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. If it gets the release that it's scheduled to get, I feel like that is a very controversial film. I think it's either going to do really, really well or really, really bad. I don't know if it's going to get quite in that middle ground as far as nominations go and just general public attention, but I think it has that general pull to where it could find an audience and could become a big deal. The I'm other one, I'm leaning I, towards really, really bad right now we'll see (laughs) and then the other one is no time to die which with the november release what it means being the 25th bond film the director obviously with their previous work have proven to be talented if the film is good and if the film really stands out as this incredible bond film and we've seen bond do at least decently well at the oscars before i have a feeling that could potentially sneak in the best picture i agree i agree wholeheartedly and if logan taught us anything if you
2: end your franchise characters' uh, story arc in a very, very compelling way. You two can get a best adapted screenplay nomination. Like, I'd still, it's still incredible to me that Logan got that nomination because that's not the type of movie, once again, that the Academy traditionally goes for. So, that in and of itself was such a win for that movie. So, now I look at uh, No Time to Die and I say to myself, okay, Skyfall got these technical nominations. So, it's very likely that No Time to Die can do that again. Sure. But can it break into, a screenplay nomination? Could Daniel Craig's performance be the best performance of his career? And maybe he's in the best actor conversation. Does Rami Malek continue his Oscar love from Bohemian Rhapsody and break into supporting actor? What What else is on the table? You know? And I think that there is a very, very high probability because of the track record of uh, Carrie Joy. Uh, oh my God, I, I never get his name right all the time. Uh, Carrie Fukunaga. I Carrie believe. Joy Fukunaga. Yeah, I, I always say to myself i i think this is the one in terms of the action blockbusters this year that people should watch out the most for well i
4: uh, personally i'd still prioritize tenant with the narrative but honestly if we're looking at no time to die i do feel like if more of the other big blockbusters get pushed out and i as well as some of like the indie blockbusters that do need that money to survive and that would get pushed out i feel like maybe fukunaga could possibly get into the best director, seeing how he performed with Maniac, which is honestly probably my favorite piece of media of 2018, uh, and as well as True Detective and honestly Beasts of No Nation, which was kind of the original Netflix award controversy film. I feel like he could possibly make a small push into that, as well as Rami Malek, if it possibly turns out to be like a, in terms of uh, Heath Ledger's Joker situation. Where like the the role is really meaty and the performance is just something out of this world. I mean, it hasn't really been showcased in the trailers as much, but it does have that potential.
2: I think that Fukunaga getting a director nomination is very, very extremely slim. Nolan couldn't get in for Inception. He couldn't get in for The Dark Knight. Um, unless if you redefine the genre and change the game and produce the greatest action movie of all time, uh, George Miller, Mad Max Fury Road, uh, they typically do not nominate action in the best director category. Picture, I, I actually would argue Skyfall was close if that, if that was a 10 year. I think Skyfall could have made it. So saying picture over director feels, I, I feel a little bit more confident saying that for No Time to Die. But still, at the end of the day, I mean,
3: we don't know. <laughs> we have no idea. I'll throw out another real possibility with Tenet and a reason it could miss is the fact that, call me crazy, I think theaters are going to reopen probably quicker than they should. And I think there's a very real chance that Tenet, as far as from a box office perspective, is not successful, especially with the big budget that has attached, that it's growing every single time they have to push back the release date and change all their marketing. I think there's a real chance that that film financially doesn't is not very successful And the fact that there might not be people who are willing to go to the theater to see the film, especially if theaters open up too early, I think there's a very real chance that that gets lost in the shuffle and lost in the conversation because of that. There's also um, irresponsibility.
2: There's an irresponsibility narrative that might get put upon Warner Brothers. And I agree that that could kill all of its campaign chances who wants to be seen voting for uh the film that despite even if it's good um contributed to towards more people getting sick and another outbreak potentially i mean god and that's that's what they're afraid of that is what everybody should be afraid of right now if they're like in the oscar conversation vying for any kind of a theatrical release or just even wanting to get profits right now nobody's going to want to be seen as that movie that uh brought large groups and then boom there were all these outbursts of uh, more people getting sick i mean that would that would kill it that would kill tenet if that's the yeah, narrative it would be all over yeah you're definitely right like i know we were
4: talking about a positive narrative but there's definitely that negative narrative there and especially i've been looking at a little bit at box office predictions which are kind of not the best thing to be looking at right now but still i saw that some analysts predict around a 30 million opening weekend which they framed as a positive but mm-hmm. honestly that's abysmal for a film of that size Agreed. and honestly now I'm thinking if it if it opens early causes more coronavirus and it gets abysmal box office returns that could pretty much put it out of contention and even take it out of some of the technical nods as well
2: oh I think it will still get technical nods at the end of the day you know a, a prestige film from a director with pedigree who's been nominated before can can still withstand i think a backlash like that and get into the technicals like you know sound editing uh you know things like that but um i yeah i would worry more about best picture Uh, a great example look at first man and how that silly flag controversy that started about that movie just instantly kind of killed any and all momentum that it was hoping to build very very early on i mean like that happened that started when it premiered at the Telluride Film Festival and just kind of snowballed from there to the point where it was never able to regain enough momentum to be a serious Best Picture contender after that. And, but it still got those tech nominations. So that's that's how I kind of view um, Tenet in that regard, where if it's positively well-reviewed uh, but suffers this backlash, you know, because of coronavirus, I still think it could, you know like first man get those technical nominations maybe even a win or two here or there but it's best picture chances gone um but then again also too how many best picture contenders are we going to have to see here necessarily maybe it can withstand that in the end like i said nobody knows anything because there's just so many different factors at play right now that it's so incredibly tough to say uh what's going to go down
0: uh, I don't want to backtrack too far here, but I wanted to add something about bonds quickly. First of all, on the director front, I think there's no way that's getting a best director nomination. If Chris McQuarrie is not getting nominated for mission impossible fallout, there's no way that, unless this is mind boggling really better than that. Hard agree. Hard yeah. agree. <laughs> um, and I was just thinking more about as an Englishman, I'm deeply, deeply invested in this, in this franchise. Uh, it's been around for ages in my household, but, um, I'm more, wor- I'm less worried about which nominations Bond will receive and more worried about if that film's going to be remotely good. I feel like that, that production's just been plagued with issues ever since the start. I mean, we lost directors, there have been issues on set. I mean, there's just been so many problems with that. So I'm more worried about the quality of that film rather than whether it'll get nominations or not. But I've been looking at the release schedule for this year, supposedly. And there's a lot of high profile stuff coming out. I mean, we're getting David Larry, Edgar Wright things, but that's not Oscar caliber stuff. As, as good as, as well renowned as those directors are, they're largely ignored by the Academy. And when I really think about things that could be viable, it's looking still kind of slim and arguable if these films are actually going to come out this year. We're getting. Um, a new Leo Karak's film, we're getting an Anthony Hopkins film called The Father, which apparently is getting tons of praise. There's a new Bradley Cooper directorial effort um, on Leonard Bernstein. Uh, Terry Malick, I'm guessing, probably isn't going to be in contention. A new Ridley Scott film, The Last Jewel, coming out, but I don't even know if that's going to be this year or not. There's a Kevin Hart serious role called Fatherhood, which I think he's going for the kind of comedian turned serious actor Oscar there. Like a you know, maybe Jim Carrey was in contention for when he did The Truman Show or Eternal Sunshine or something like that. So there's lots of things with potential, but I think the Oscars might need to broaden their horizons a bit when they consider what kind of films they're going to be allowing in, because there are a lot of high profile releases, but they're not releases that would be considered in a a normal year for the Academy. To round out Clappercast, we like to end on some of our latest film or TV recommendations. Matt, what have you been watching this week? Oh man, so much.
2: Um, so I actually think the old guard was surprisingly decent. It's not great, but it's uh, something that like, I would recommend people check out, especially if they're starving for action blockbuster content right now, which let's face it, we kind of are. On the flip side of that, also Greyhound is an excellent action film to watch at home, especially we've got a great surround system. And I recommend watching Hamilton a million times over and over until the day you die, because that thing is just a true, true genius work of art that is like on the level of shakespearean quality that i i like i'm telling literally every person i know to watch that listen to that soundtrack whatever they can do so uh yeah uh obviously the other movies we talked about too palm springs first cow it's a great week it's a really really great
0: week here uh definitely yeah backing hamilton all the way there uh diego what have you been watching so actually lately i've been on kind of a david lynch binge
4: because i wasn't really familiar with the work, but I was really familiar with the person. And so in the span of three days, I watched Eraserhead, Blue Velvet, and Mahalan Drive. My and God. While Vel- yeah, yeah, it was pretty intense. And while Blue Velvet, in my opinion, was a little bit too generic for what I expected from Lynch, both Eraserhead and Mahalan Drive completely blew my mind. And I watched them late at night, and I, I stayed up for a couple more hours just thinking about everything that was going on in those films and if you haven't watched them I definitely suggest that you check them out I believe Mulholland Drive just left Criterion Channel but it should be out pretty much in all all services same with Eraserhead as well
0: Carlson awesome.
3: So I've been on a bit of a Studio Ghibli rewatch. I love all their films and I decided to rewatch all of them. And I know they're all available mostly on HBO Max, which I really recommend. But if you don't have HBO Max, but you have Hulu, Grave of the Fireflies is the one exception. It's on Hulu, but not HBO Max. I mentioned it earlier during our first cow discussion. I rewatched it this week. It is haunting, beautiful, Mastercraft from Isao Takahata. So I'm just going to go ahead and recommend that. Or if you have HBO Max, just watch any of them. They're all fantastic films.
0: Love it. Uh, just to wrap it all up, uh, I've been watching, well, the, the best thing I've seen this week is definitely an early Lawrence Kasdan directorial effort called The Big Chill from 1983. It's a great kind of ensemble cast of the, the best actors and actresses of that era. You've got Glenn Close, Jeff Goldblum, the list goes on, Kevin Klein. and it's just a fantastic kind of friendship movie. We were talking about friendship movies with First Cow, and I don't think this would be the best double bill with that. But I think, you know, for early 80s kind of friendship films, it's actually a lovely one to go to. But um, that, that, that makes it all for this episode of Clappercast. Where can we find everyone on social media? Matt? Uh, so you can
2: find me on all the social media uh, websites and also our podcast at next best picture. Um, we cover the Oscar race all year long. So the next best picture uh, can come around at any time, maybe not in the first half of this year, but you know, anytime, uh, we're always on the lookout for what's going to be uh, that that's picture contender. Also too, just in general, what's going to be like the best thing that you see in any given week. So um,
3: all of our content can be found at nextbestpicture.com. Carson. So on Letterboxd, I just have Carson tomorrow, or you can find me on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews. I post retweets to all my links and all my reviews. So if you want my thoughts, Twitter is probably the best place to find it.
0: And Diego.
4: You can find me both on Twitter and Letterboxd at The Diego Andaluz, and that's A-N-D-A-L-U-Z. And I post pretty much every movie I watch. I reviewed a couple paragraphs. And on Twitter, I'm not as active, but lately I've been getting on the retweet grind.
0: Lovely. Well, you can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk, and find out social links on Clapper at Facebook and at Clapper Limited on Twitter. Make sure to rate, subscribe, or follow us to be notified when the next episode comes out. Thank you all for listening and we'll be back next week to discuss all things cinema.